Gresham College presents Business Relationships, Do They Still Count? by Daniel Hodson, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. The topic is business relationships, do they count anymore? And uh, this was really conceived in the context of some of the key issues which have dominated my business and professional career with a view to there being themes which I would address this year. And this particular lecture concerns a very basic aspect of business, the relationships between individuals and business entities with some common interest or objective. And I define relationship as the development over time of mutual interests, understanding and trust, so that each party to it benefits from it and wishes to continue it. <clears throat> it is a continuous and two-way stream based on the past and looking to the future. It cannot survive if either party does not desire that it should do so. The relationship may involve a business transaction in the form of goods and services between corporates, or it may involve the provision of labor as between employer and employee, or it may involve a subtler but nonetheless important relationship as with shareholders or between regulator and regulated, or between representatives of the communities or the environment in which a corporate operates, as examples of the other stakeholders in a business. Now, uh, as has become traditional in my series at any rate, I've asked a couple of friends uh, to come along uh, to, uh, to, to help me. And what I will do is I will speak probably for about uh, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then I'll ask them each to uh, shoot holes in what I've said in order to stir up some interest and so that we can invite questions from the floor and keep the conversation going. On my far left is Anthony Stern, who is uh, a very distinguished treasurer. In fact, he's president of the Association of Corporate Treasurers and he's director of Treasury at Six Continents PLC, which, if I'm allowed to say so, was formerly Bass. <laughs> Nicholas Derlacher, Nick Derlacher, uh, is uh, sitting immediately on my left and had uh, the distinction and pain of being my former boss when he was chairman of life. In fact, I think he was responsible for hiring me. Uh, not a very wise decision, although you've made many other wise decisions, wiser decisions in your life, Nick. And uh, more recently, he has been uh, serving during its twilight years, if I may put it that way, of, uh, as chairman of the Securities and Futures Authority, which is now in the process of being merged with the FSA. So back to relationships. It is obvious that the overall topic of relationships is complex, many-sided, and as broad as it is long. I thought, therefore, to take the perspective of the board in determining the key aspects of relationships, and the extent to which boards should consider as part of their regular deliberations the requirement for quality and depth of relationships. Relationships in business are, in general, regular, continuous affairs, conducted very much at an operating level, so that they are, for the most part, well below the board radar. There is, however, a very important aspect of every business relationship on which I shall focus. The concept in the investment in those relationship, relationships, and it can be costly in terms of time, cost, and material, in relationship as an insurance premium against some strategic event, circumstance, or change, where the quality of the relationship becomes critical, and if substandard, potentially very costly. A premium, if you like, against risk. The board's role, then, is to ensure that this so-called premium is being paid, and regularly to consider this as part of the risk analysis and compilation of the risk register, the risk register which is now a normal and important part of corporate governance.
I shall concentrate on supplier relationships, in the particular context of the banker-customer relationship, on that between employee and employers, and with key stakeholders, the key stakeholders of shareholders and regulators, very much with a city flavour. Now, this insurance aspect of relationships is often downplayed or overlooked. Take as an example commoditized transactions, which are often put forward as circumstances where relationships simply are not worth establishing. They're supposedly too costly, and the product can be bought from a large number of purveyors, the name of the game being shopping around. But look at commodity transactions themselves inside or outside formal markets. Classically, commodity markets users will deal through a wholesaler, broker or middleman, who will depend on the former to deliver either cash or the relevant commodity, and to be as good as his words. In other, word, in other words, the wholesaler has a delivery or cash risk, often called counterparty risk, and will therefore maintain a line or limit of his exposure to the customer, which will be designed to cover a significant number of transactions, and beyond which he will not be prepared to go. It will be based on the customer's creditworthiness and the wholesaler's perception and experience of the reliability of the customer. Now, some users, will use their, some users will use their perceived attractiveness in such markets to try to finesse the need for the establishment of a relationship. Their attraction is so great, they believe, that those with whom they deal will always deal with them, regardless. And under most circumstances, this may be true. But there may occasionally be times when it may not be so easy for them. In the case of commodity markets, there are two important examples. First, where the counterparty risk increases. The customer is going through a tough time commercially and financially affecting his creditworthiness and even his long-term viability in that market. So his counterparty risk increases. Or where there's a shortage or glut of the commodity for whatever reason. And this creates difficulties for the would-be buyer or seller, certainly in the absence of a strong relationship. But where there is a strong relationship, the counterparty may be happy to manage a deteriorating credit and delivery risk based on knowledge, confidence, and the potential for future business when the trading crisis is over for his customer. If the counterparty is a seller in times of shortage, he may incline to ration his sales to those customers with whom he has a quality relationship. And if a buyer, he may be prepared to deal with a distressed seller for the sake of the past and more business in the future. The conclusion is that the establishment of a relationship, costly as it may be to set up and maintain, and however commoditized the underlying product or service, represents a form of insurance premium against a change in circumstances which may even in some cases be life-threatening. The board's role is to ensure that the nature of the risk is appreciated and that the premium is properly paid, fine print and all. Of course, the one uninsurable risk is the, run in, is the random behavior of individuals in the relationship building. Now, as a little anecdote, I spent some time in and around the advertising business where, of course, pitching, as I say, going out to try to get business, to, pit, to gain and keep accounts, is the order of the day. And everybody involved in pitches is literally on their best behavior, before, during, and after. Now, when I lived in Sydney, Australia, there was going around a famous story of uh, how one target customer could only arrange the relevant pitch with his advertising agency at 9 a.m. on a Saturday, which is not a hugely popular gesture having regard to Australian Friday night habits. One disheveled member of the pitching team travelled up the lift at 8.59 a.m. that morning and was asked by the other person in the lift, whom he didn't know, how he was that day. Good day, mate. How are you going? Or words that effect. Reply was, bloody terrible, mate, he said. Mouth like a Chinese restless jockstrap. 
and some guy wants to tell him how to sell his lousy product at this time of the morning. Don't know who's worse, him or the soap powder. Well, there's no prizes for guessing who the client was or what was the outcome of the pitch. One of the more fascinating aspects of business is that although huge amounts of money and other resources are expended on the image, coverability, quality and reputation of the corporate entity, a very simple example is the building up an investment in the brand, so much of the quality of the relationship depends on the individual, particularly when the individual's skills can be separated from general perceptions of skills, trust, etc., attributed to the firm. In fact, corporate relationships are a complex mixture between people acting on behalf of their employers, not the employer itself, himself. The human facts are that most people set out to enjoy their business life where they can. And one of the pleasures is to do business or relate to people whose company one enjoys, whose ability one respects, and perhaps most importantly, whom one trusts. People are, if you like, the cement, in some cases even the bricks of the relationship. Now, having fun with um, would-be clients doesn't always work. When I was a corporate treasurer, I caught sight of a rather flattering note, file note from one bank, bank marketing officer uh, when I was visiting that bank market, marketing officer to another one saying, quotes, you don't get any business from Dan Hodson, but you will have a few laughs. Relationships are therefore first and foremost built between people. The salesman with his purchasing opposite number, the premises manager with his opposite numbers of the local council, the boss with members of his team. There are, of course, the overarching corporate relationships. Business of any kind is almost always done in the name of the firm, with the individuals concerned acting as agents. And this may survive non-existent and or very low-grade, even thoroughly antipathetic personal relationships, those with a mono, as, like those with a monolistic, mono, mono, monopolistic supplier, such as utilities. But even in the latter case, there is increasing choice. And the special needs and occasional favours and priorities needed from suppliers of, for example, telecommunications, gas, electricity, surely give rise to a need in, to develop personal relationships within the relevant entity. If the relationship is important and is potentially based on how people respond to each other, not how firms as, firm, firm, firms, as firms interact, a major corporate objective must be somehow to depersonalise the relationship either by ensuring that those handling it are selected so that they will always engender the right reactions, respect and trust in opposite numbers, or to make the overall relationship so important to the counterparty that it can invite the most uncongenial of human relationships because of mutual need. When I was a marketing banker, I used to meet some pretty appalling finance directors and treasurers, pleased with themselves, arrogant, and loving the opportunity to twist the tail of some whippersnapper young banker, not like my friend Anthony on the left there, including one such person who spent the entire time allotted to our interview gazing out of the window and talking about the old totem pole-like structure which sat outside his offices and what every layer of that totem pole meant. Those who have travelled down the Great West Road may know the company I'm talking about. And I felt sure that I knew which level of that totem pole was reserved for conscientious young bankers but I had to grit my teeth and bide my time when being treated this way, since I knew that my employer would value the relationship even with a four-letter man on the other side. It is another key but subtle role for the board in the context of strategic relationship risk management to ensure that this depersonalization occurs, whilst retaining the benefits and ensuring the underlying risk associated with that relationship. 
Touching on counterparty risk and the role of individuals in relationship building leads naturally to a discussion of the customer-supplier relationship in the context of banking products and services, where such risk and approach to marketing plays an important underlying role. Banking these days is, of course, a much more sophisticated and broader service for corporates than it was when I began my working life nearly 40 years ago. Then, the basic business was about accepting deposits, lending money and moving the latter around, with a few ancillaries like trade credit and foreign exchange. And to this could be added the gentlemanly profession of merchant banking, which was mainly concerned with the underwriting of new issues and advice on mergers and acquisitions, and alongside came the company stockbroker. There was usually one of each of these providers, and relationships were of long standing. In outline, the lack of sharp competition led to little product innovation and to oligop oligop oligopolistic pricing. But there was the advantage that, in theory at least, your, your banker-merchant banker-stockbroker was loyal and would stick by you through thick and thin. Furthermore, the profession of treasury management was in its infancy. And I can well remember going out to the provinces to sell banking services on behalf of an upstart American bank in the late 60s to find that my corporate opposite number was, as like as not, a rather bored company secretary or junior member of the accounting staff, often called the cashier, charged with the tedious business of managing banking matters, while his financial bosses got on with the lordly matter of keeping the accounts. To most of them, forward foreign exchange was as alien as integral calculus is to the checkout lady. But times changed. Led, I must say, by the American invaders, competition became more intense and products more competitive, complex, and better tailored to corporate needs. As a direct result, the new profession of corporate treasury management uh, arose, and treasures became vastly more demanding and looked around for better and more imaginative services and sharper pricing. At treasurer's fingertips today are not only the original banking services, but the whole panoply of products that are very commonplace. And with new and to the corporate cashier of the 60s totally baffling names, swaps and collars, options of every stripe, lending instruments of every term and repayment schedule, and inf information technology, IT support, which would have left the back office treasury implements of the 60s look like abacuses. Most importantly, they're able to pick and choose their suppliers. And whilst the services grew in usefulness and sophistication, the number of suppliers have likewise burgeoned. Your average corporate treasurer is now a highly skilled individual, so much so that one of the main group groupings using the ACT's professional training courses are the very bankers who are selling treasurers the services. Where in the past the chap who did the banking was consigned to a corporate cubbyhole in the fifth office on the rice, he is now a high-profile senior executive, quite possibly with profit responsibilities, but certainly with a keen awareness from his, colleagues, from his colleagues of his ability to impact the bottom line and to assist in their various tasks. He will also be a constant target of the selling techniques of many financial institutions and will have plenty of opportunity to ruminate on what is increasingly obvious to observers of the banking scene. There are, by and large, too many banks and suppliers of banking services around. The relationship he engenders will vary from close and long-standing to highly transactional and commoditized, with past and no future expectancy, merely the expediency of today. So what is the right balance? Certainly today's treasurer would enjoy, for, for his investment in any given relationship, however slight, much better products and pricing. He will be able to shop around, 
but for the most part, he will be able to obtain what he needs from a small group of suppliers with whom he has established closer relationships. Nonetheless, the opportunity cost will be based on the fact that we will frequently be able to get cheaper, albeit usually marginally, services elsewhere, and also from time to time, better and more innovative ideas. Some suppliers will also appear to provide goods that are so commoditized, foreign exchange and derivative products, that he will hardly think it worthwhile building up the relationship. And his front-end costs will be minimal, as he will be besieged by salesmen. So why not always go where the products are cheapest? Why pay the insurance premium associated with relationship building? The answer is twofold. Most corporate banking relationships are based to a greater or lesser degree on credit worthiness or exposure management. As I've argued earlier, this may not be immediately obvious in the more commoditized transactions, but even they have an underlying, underlying exposure aspect. No corporate can expect not to have the occasional credit frisson. It is then that the fair-weather friends, who have been used only for single transactions with knife-edged knife pricing, will wither away. And the treasurer will be only able to turn to those who know him and his business for many years, where a relationship of trust and mutual understanding has built up. They will support him when the chips are down. In addition, a wise treasurer will look to his banking suppliers for innovation and ideas. The latter are more likely to provide these to clients or customers with whom there is an established durable relationship of trust and mutual benefit. The insurance premium is, of course, cost, direct and opportunity. And like insurance premiums, the wise and prudent approach is to pay as little as possible for the most comprehensive cover. On the one hand, it's axiomatic that it would be very foolish to allow banking relationships to become so skimpy that when bad times come, as come they will, the resulting banking requirements are hard, if not impossible, to find. It is therefore necessary to establish a group of core banking relationships, in particular to cover all activities where credit exposure is involved and necessary insurance premium. And this activity should not forget that suppliers may have limited capacity for credit and other exposure. It may be necessary to have more than one core relationship where such exposure is involved in order to protect the customer's interest and requirements. On the other hand, it is also important to maintain a watching brief on the market to ensure that the Treasurer is fully aware of pricing and product opportunities, but not to the degree that when wheels fall off, bankers will not be around to help put them back on. Nor indeed is the customer necessarily the only party who should have strategic relationship insurance. Sometimes the boot may be entirely on the other foot, and banks which have gone through recent vicissitudes, Bearings and its resultant parts, Barclays and Nat West spring to mind, are good examples of this. I have a particularly graphic example of such insurance where it actually benefited both bank and customer. Some 20 years ago, Schroders were going through a bad patch and had, through arrogance and other misdemeanors, alienated, in some cases, lost clients. The newly appointed chairman of Schroders, Wynne Bischoff, went round each client, including Unigate, where I was FD, Admit, and admitting that its mistakes had been made and asking for a chance to set matters to right. It was, if you like, a call on long-standing relationships, and it worked, certainly for us. Put that way, what else could we do? Our gesture was reciprocated a very short time later, when there were rumours that we were about to be the object of a dawn raid. 
that is, a sudden offer to buy a large number of shares of our market at a price rather higher than market of, that, of our shares, at a price rather higher than the then market price. And this would normally be, and we assumed it was in that case, a first shot in an unwanted takeover bid. And Schroders, without being asked, committed to frustrate the raid by offering it a penny higher than the raid price, up to a substantial ceiling. In the event there was no raid, but the symbolism of their commitment was absolutely unmistakable. Finally, an interesting issue arises when the relationship is more with an individual than with a firm. A situation which is more likely to occur, for instance, in an advisory rather than a capital raising exercise. To what extent is it wise to transfer relationships based on individuals rather than their employers? The temptation will be great in this day and age when teams of bankers of all kinds are transferring on block from one major firm to another. The answer must be judgmental and based on the needs for an insurance premium. If a trusted and respected individual moves, the question be whether moving the relationship with him will weaken the strategic relationship insurance. If the risk is bearable because that insurance can be carried elsewhere, or in the case of this service there is no risk, then there should be no problem. But a prudent treasurer will be very careful in moving with an individual when the strategic relationship insurance may be damaged. In fact, the conclusion must be that if the insurance motive is real, it is in the interest of the customer to maintain the relationship on a corporate basis and not with individuals within the bank, except as agencies of the latter. The latter must be also true of the bank, who will not be impressed if a long cultivated treasurer of a major uh, ups and leaves and his successor is not the slightest bit interested in continuing the relationship. From the bank's viewpoint too, the main point is the corporate relationship and the personal relationship can only be a means to an end and not an end in itself. Now thus, the curious and potentially unstable relationship between individuals and their employees as it affects external relationships is also an interesting part of the discussion of the interplay between customer and banker. Now, I have dealt with that in my last uh, uh, lecture in the context of what seems to me to be a breakdown of level of loyalty and eth ethical behavior between employee and employer. I will not go into the details of the argument, which was part of a larger theme based on the idea that while city ethics had, not generally imp had improved generally in the last 40 years, interpersonal honesty had not in many cases, driven in large part by the major cultural changes seen in the, seen in the city. I conclude in this instance the combination of greed and change culture had led to an environment in which, in many firms, loyalty between employee and employer was minimal. Witness well-publicized demarche of teams from one financial institution to another. In my mind, both sides were in part to blame. The employer for dismal human relations management, relations management at a time when that profession was making many successful strides forward, and the employee in the context of rather dif different personal ethics than those of a generation ago. But the conclusion I draw from my earlier lecture shows that there are both firms and employees who have a scornful, cynical and damaging attitude to this key relationship. This is exacerbated in the case of the city, where, um, where there are many examples of the firm, professional partnerships for instance, being in reality no more than the sum of the individuals within it, and the two becoming indistinguishable. If the employees depart, the firm is no more. 
My two further strategic conclusions today are first that both sides are forgetting the important and strategic relationship in insurance uh, aspects of that relationship. The current city climate of consolidation and rationalization is hardly one which suggests got job, job security anywhere in stark contrast to the situation only a year ago. In simple terms, an employee may value a loyal employer who provides a measure of protection against market and economic downturns. And it's also hard to argue against the proposition that an employee likely to stay is more valuable than one who will up and off at the drop of a hat. A firm's value will be positively affected by the quality and stability of its workforce, the insurance premium being the cost of achieving that. The employee's insurance premium will be the cost of passing over outside opportunities for security and job satisfaction. And both sides will be arguably better off if the level of mutual loyalty and stability were to improve. Secondly, the achievement of the latter aim, this is my second point, is not so difficult once the importance of the relationship has been achieved. In today's world, despite cost and performance pressures, the achievement of better quality of human relations has to be a core objective for the companies that could be affected by mutual disaffection. Better career planning, appraisal, and objective setting, remuneration packaging, and internal communications, and just better one-on-one -on -one man management. From the employee's point of view, the period of current uncertainty would have brought a new realism, and in any event, much of the high velocity of circulation of teams and individuals will have been a function not just of a bull investment banking market, but also of the rapid evolution of city institutions since that Big Bang, all that now perhaps going through a period of stability. And again, these HR concerns are an important aspect of the board's strategic relationship management. Now, in this lecture, I'm concentrating on five stakeholders only, customers, suppliers, employees, employers, shareholders, and regulators. There are, of course, many. In an earlier lecture during last year's course, I made a reasonably well-accepted point that in general terms, if shareholders are the ultimate stakeholders ahead of all the others, the best way to look after shareholders' interests is to treat each of the other stakeholder groups uh, as well as resources and priorities allow. Of suppliers, I would only add specific reason for the importance of establishing a good quality relationship with purveyors of banking services applies to suppliers generally. In particular, the availability of key supplies when times are tough and the provision of new ideas and products to help enhance the company's own business. To this must be added the importance in a competitive market of good quality suppliers to give and maintain an edge over market rivals. Moving on, it used to be that certainly in public companies, shareholders were part of the capital structure, but remote, and were only likely ready to cause problems when things got really bad. In the meantime, it was the company's brokers and merchant bankers who kept shareholders informed, aside from the formal requirements of stock market, market listing. But it is very different now. Shareholders have come to the top of the communication priorities of PLCs. It is clear that developing an understanding as well as clear communications were allowed under listing rules, and the establishment of personal contacts can be hugely important, both in good and bad times. There are two key objectives, a stock market valuation best, based on the best possible information, and the ability to get support where needed for transactions, raising money, going through periods of difficulties, and strategic changes of all types. An informed shareholder is more likely to be a supporter, 
whilst an uninformed one, particularly when faced with shocks, can be an instant and permanent enemy. An earlier lecture deals in more detail with the executive responsibility for shareholders, uh, chairman or, or CEO for that, dealing with that responsibility, concluding that so far as the chairman and CEO is concerned, it depends to a large degree on the respective personalities and agreed interaction between the two. But the level at which this responsibility is, which this responsibility is pitched clearly singles it out as a matter for the board to be concerned with and to review on a regular basis. Now another stakeholder area where a board perspective is very important and the relationship should be carefully cultivated is that with the regulator. This is of course of particular interest in the financial service area which has relatively close regulatory supervision. Now in one sense the regulator is a routine and continuous relationship with the latter, the regulator, in many ways taking the lead. But there is one potentially vital aspect of regulation where the development of relationships at a relatively senior level may pay dividends, the premium for the insurance, to use my ongoing terminology. Financial markets, particularly in London, where so much of the financial technology cutting edge is based, are in a constant state of expansion, innovation and evolution. One of the key tasks of all market participants is, and I quote, educating the regulator, unquote. For the regulatory approach and conventional wisdom of today may be geared towards yesterday's market and its practices. An absolutely key aspect of re relationships with, reg reg with regulators is to ensure through personal contact and interactive uh, uh, relationships that they, the regulators, understand what is going on in the markets that they supervise. It's certainly true that when I was Chief Executive of Life, we constantly spent a significant amount of time and resource making sure that the leading edge of an endlessly changing market was communicated to the regulator. It is an investment which will pay dividends, not only to ensure that the regulatory approach to the market is appropriate, but also to instill confidence in the regulator, which may be of the greatest importance in any strategic corporate upheaval, benign or malign which may require regulatory attention and even approval. The salutary point is the constant cry in the context of financial crisis and disaster of where were the regulators? An entirely relevant concomitant question springs to mind. What was the board doing to make sure that the regulators understood not just the company's activities, but the practices and risks of the market in which they were participating? And again, the name bearings and equitable life come inexorably to mind. But I will let boards off the hook of one relationship and of overriding importance, but of which they can only be dimly aware and certainly cannot control. The personal or assistant or PA, she who in less enlightened days used to be called the secretary, who guards the door of the object of a desired relationship. Now, I still spend quite measurable amounts of my time attempting to get past these paragons to sell the goods and services of uh, companies which I, which I chair. And um, uh, when you go to these paragons, and by the way, it's interesting for aficionados of Scrabble, but if one removes PA from paragon and adds D, the word becomes dragon, a highly politically incorrect but often truthful description. But they are often always really, critical in deciding what gets to their boss's attention and what is simply too unimportant or inappropriate. I once knew a secretary, as they were called in those days, who refused to put female callers through to a boss on the grounds they might engage his attention. 
for the simple reason that her sole purpose in life was to do just that herself. And I had a marvellous secretary of my own, whom, when I was at Unigate, I caught binning, as it turned out, a, a pucker extortion note, on the grounds that it was clearly a joke. And it wasn't. And the next 48 hours were the most stressful of my business life. I'm glad to say we outwitted the per perpetrators. So I often say, like Kaiserwitz, that time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. And reconnaissance involving getting to know and hopefully to be liked and trusted by the PA can be a critical relationship investment. And remember, not many senior, senior executives with PAs answer their own telephones, nor demand a log of who has called them. Got good timing. Their cultivation is essential, through, although the level of success will never appear in a corporate risk register. Now, before asking my guests for, my, for their comments, let me just summarize my main conclusions. And they were, an important role for the board in the context of strategic risk analysis to ensure that key relationships are properly cultivated as an insurance premium against unusual circumstances. Such insurance may be critical, particularly in customer-supplier relationships, where innovation and product development may be important, as may the availability of goods and services when economic and or market circumstances are difficult. In banking relationships in particular, the establishment of a core of loyal committed banking suppliers may be critical for, for support at such times. Relationships are based on people, but wise boards will seek to depersonalize them as far as possible. It is unwise, particularly in banking relationships, to put too much emphasis and trust in an individual within an, in, within an organization rather than the latter as a whole. Many boards of city firms are not paying enough attention to the strategic risk associated with poor employee-employer relationships. And then finally, the board should pay particular attention to shareholder and, where appropriate, re regulator relations. In the case of the latter, educating the regulator may be as strategically important as keeping informed on corporate activities. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk